Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm a Vice President at Autism Spectrum Therapies, part of the Learn It family of companies. We provide services to kids with autism all across the country. Uh, as many of you guys know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a BCBA. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst. And, you know, we, we kind of do so many of these shows through that that ABA lens of mine. And, um, you know, today's going to be one of our shows with Dr. Hannah Rue. And, and so we're going to go pretty deep into the, into the world of ABA, into a side of things that even clinicians don't talk too much about on a regular basis. But one of the reasons I really wanted to, to have this conversation with, with Hannah um, is because it's actually coming up more and more in my kind of day-to-day life when I'm, when I'm talking to health plans. One of the big conversations going on right now is how do we know that therapy is working? And, and, and it sounds kind of silly. You know, we, we have talked so much in this show, and, and anyone who knows ABA out there has probably knows that data is so huge. It's data, 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 data. But what, what I keep hearing from health plans is this data is great, but we need something else. We want to see something more. And what we're going to talk a little bit about today is this concept of fidelity. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of understanding, was this treatment done the way it's supposed to be done? And I think that's a little different than, than the data we typically reflect on when we submit a progress report to a school district, to an insurance company, to whomever, I mean, even, even to you, a parent. Um, there's got to be more insight into was this procedure run the way it was supposed to be run, which then lets us know, should we really expect the outcome that we think we're going to get? So take take a seat, listen back. We're going to go and talk to Dr. Rue in a second um, and and really get kind of into the nitty-gritty of this concept of fidelity, um, particularly since it it really is becoming a, a bigger and bigger topic kind of behind the scenes. Hannah, welcome back to the show. Great to have you here. Um, so, you know, like always, let, let's pick up, it feels like, where we left off. Um, you know, we ended our mm-hmm. last show, our last time together. We were talking about, you know, our ramblings about fidelity. And we got into this big world of, you know, fidelity and what should we do with it. And so, you know, why don't we kind of take a step back, anyone who didn't hear the last show or, or anyone who maybe is forgetting, um, Give, give us the lowdown. What is the concept of fidelity? What is it? Why do we do it? Well, even a step back further is the terminology that we use. So depending on who you're working with, the clinician that you're working with, they might be talking about procedural fidelity or treatment integrity or treatment fidelity, or they might use those terms interchangeably. And oftentimes 
they are interchangeable. Um, when you get down to, you know, some specific uh, research protocols and definitions and concepts, um, it can, you can get into the nitty gritty, but all of those things mean the same thing. And essentially what a clinician, when a clinician is talking about procedural fidelity or integrity with a parent in regards to the program that's happening, they're essentially trying to communicate with them how to, um, do a quality check, how to ensure things are happening as they were designed to happen. A lot of times we have checklists. So if you have, for example, a child who has a home-based program or a clinic-based program and they're doing discrete trial training or natural environment training or verbal behavior, there might be a checklist for that clinician or the supervisor that indicates, you know, the appropriate materials are used, the appropriate instructions are provided, data is collected appropriately. And uh, the clinician or the supervisor might go through that checklist and then provide some feedback to the person who's working with the child. And that's a way for us to monitor and manage quality to ensure that the way that we've written these programs up, whether or not it's for, you know, developing skills or reducing challenging behavior, that these programs are implemented as they were designed. That's the only way we can know if the programs are effective, if, is if we implement them with near 100% integrity. Once that's done and, you know, if it's working, great. If it's not, then we need to make some adjustments, but we can only know uh, to make those adjustments if we know how well it's being implemented. So, like, I hear you say that, and I kind of, like, immediately I go into, like, two different directions. I think first to – I'm sitting in grad school, this concept of fidelity, integrity, and, and, and of course, behavior analysts have to name the same thing, like, five different things to, to really make it complicated. Um, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking back to my school. I'm thinking back. They're saying, okay, great. Like, the gold standard or the minimum standard is 80% fidelity. And then I think mm-hmm. to – the parents we work with. And I think to, mm-hmm. you know, how many times, and, and, you know, this happens at AST, this happens across the country at every ABA provider I know, you get a new staff and a new staff member comes in and maybe they're taking over the program from a different staff member and maybe their fidelity is a little bit lower than the other person's fidelity. So mm-hmm. if I have this concept, if I'm doing this checklist and I'm checking off all these boxes, you know, why is it that it's still okay for me to be at 80% or, or is it okay? Or is it a big deal that, oh, you know what, I've got someone new to this program and, and they're not quite there at 100% right away. Does that throw off treatment completely? Does that make it ineffective? Like wh- wh- why is it we're okay with this and, and should we be okay with this? There's been some research done that talks about the different types of errors. So there's errors of omission when you forget to do something on that checklist, maybe, for example, or errors of commission when you do something in addition. So you add a little extra flair that wasn't, you know, on that checklist. Um, And there's been some research to show, you know, that a certain amount of error is acceptable and an individual can still learn the skill outlined if you're making errors, and that's great. Um, but I think it depends on, um, what that clinician is working on. You know, if you think about it, uh, you know, to have a broader example, uh, we didn't come up with this concept of integrity or fidelity. It's been around for a long time, mainstream psychology, aviation, and things like that. Um, and take, for example, aviation, individual, I mean, uh, pilots in a cockpit, they have to go through a checklist to determine, you know, everything's working. You can imagine those errors, certain errors uh, could 
lead to dire consequences. So I think yeah. the same thing holds true for applied behavior analysis. There are probably mm. some programs for, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, an individual with autism who might have some serious like self-injury or aggressive behavior, and it might be of great importance uh, to adhere 100%, you know, to a certain treatment protocol, whereas, you know, a discrete trial training program, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a gray area, maybe there's a little bit more acceptability for errors in, in that specific program. So, I think it is just like everything in behavior analysis. I think it's individualized and um, is determined by the context and the objective of what you're trying to do. So I guess it, it sounds like just well, there's room for error, but the room, the amount of error is really dependent upon the child, the goal, the situation. It's it's individualized, and 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 that's obviously up to a certain point. It's not like we can make errors across the board on everything, and oh, you know, it's still miraculously this kid meets the goal. Um, mm-hmm. How how do you? I mean. Is there a rule of thumb? Is there, you know, I'm trying to put myself in that new BCBA. You know, the, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking about all those 20-something-year-old BCBAs that get their certificate. They're so excited. You know, I, I hear what you just said, and I hear clinical intuition. You know, that's, that's something mm-hmm. that's come up on our show uh, a few times recently is this concept mm-hmm. of clinical intuition. You know, is it? purely clinical intuition to know, you know, this is that one error that's okay. Um, are there more specific guidelines for behavior, behavior analysts to reference? And more importantly, are there those guidelines for a parent whose child is getting treatment to be able to say, like, yes, this is uh, an acceptable room for error versus, no, I must have that clinical intuition? Mm, intuition. That's a that's a whole nother concept. Let me frame it from maybe. Um, <laughs> should we should we avoid that about... concept for a little while? <laughs> no no no, I'm okay with it. I'm feeling just fine. <laughs> okay. Um, but maybe I can talk about. I mean, it from I know a, we um, I know we can't operationally define intuition all the time. So. Right right no and and I and I mean obviously I can I get what you're saying and if we're in yeah. BCBA, you know there's there's something that comes with that and I prefer to you know think about it maybe as clinical judgment in term that relies mm-hmm. on your own learning history as a clinician. So, mm. you know, being in this field for, you know, 20 something years, I have a specific learning history. My um, clinical practice is in part shaped by what I've done in the past. And so it may be that these previous experiences are, you know, if you're brand new to the field, maybe what right. you learned during practicum or in your classroom will have an impact on why you make a judgment, you know, in a certain manner. Um, right. And, and, yeah, I think that, I mean, clinical judgment is part of evidence-based practice. So you do have to rely on, you know, the, your your schooling and your previous supervision history and what you've seen in your clinical practice in making some of these judgments. You know, you might make a different decision, again, with a kid who has some high-risk behaviors. You know, you might act a little bit more quickly. You might be a little bit more demanding in terms of the you know, percentage of integrity, getting 100% integrity mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a three-year-old who, you know, maybe someone forgot to reinforce an approximation of, you know, a word. Um, so, no, mm-hmm. I think there is room for clinical judgment or clinical intuition, and I think it's, I think it comes from every clinician's previous learning history um, and how we've been shaped as clinicians to engage in uh, quality practice. Mm. You know, 
when, when we think about this this concept of fidelity, you know, my my mind kind of goes into like, you know, I, as always, I kind of think I apply it to to my world, to what I'm doing on a day to day basis. You know, who am I talking to? And so, you know, to, to for me, I think about parents and I think about pairs. You know, that that really is my world. I I think those are probably mm-hmm. the, the the people that I talk to on a day to day basis, even more so than clinicians right now. I, I think mm-hmm. those are my two big categories and, and you know so if we can continue down this parent point of view i guess one of the things that i, I find interesting is you know okay we're, we're introducing this concept of integrity fidelity we're, we're basically saying this tells you is is the program being run correctly and if the program isn't being run correctly well then progress is unlikely to happen you know that that's something that's going to be a big barrier um is is there though a parent like a parent ed component, a parent participation component to this. Like, is, is there ways for fidelity for a clinician or for a parent to be able to use these fidelity checklists to then inform how a parent can, you know, incorporate strategies into their day-to-day life, reinforce what it is that's happening um, within, or sorry, not within, but outside of the session so that that Saturday afternoon is still every bit as effective and consistent with the, the therapy or the treatment or the contingencies throughout the rest of the week. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, that's something I probably would love to see done more frequently is, you know, a parent and a clinician working together so that you know, I mean, like you said, it's the real world. Parents aren't going to spend Saturdays yeah. doing discrete trial or natural environment. You know, they're not focused no. on programming. But maybe they should be sitting down with their clinicians to talk about, hey, how can I work on these things in my day-to-day life, you know, when I'm doing laundry or right. when we're out at the park or at the grocery store? Um, and one way that you can do that is by using using the concept of self-monitoring which could at the same time be a fidelity checklist. So you could sit down with your clinician and say, okay, if we had to pick out maybe like two or three things for me to work on this weekend, what would that be? Like what's most yeah. important? You know, it might, a lot of times I would say probably communication because we're always working on our individuals communicating appropriately or social skills right. maybe. And maybe you sit down with the clinician. The clinician says, look, where are you going this weekend? You're going to the movies? You're going to the grocery store? Here, let me develop a little checklist so that you know when the opportunity arises, Maybe you provide a prompt for your kid. Maybe that's step number one. Right. Step number two, uh, you know, provide the reinforcement or, you know, whatever it is necessary. So you could have a pretty easy kind of self-monitoring at the yeah. same time, you know, integrity checklist that works for you. And that could get, you know, that could help to make some real strides in your in your child's life by, you know, just having a few little reminders on a sticky note. doesn't even have to be in a fancy iPad data collection system, write it down on a sticky note, put it on your refrigerator, put it on a mirror somewhere so it reminds you to do this, it reminds you to take these steps. It's as easy as that and can be really effective. So, I mean, this is a little tangential, but, you know, I'm listening to you talk about checklists, and immediately my mind goes to it seems like we only use checklists for task analyses for self-help skills. And (laughs) it seems like the use of checklists and behavior analysis is like – it could be so much bigger than that, and I feel like I never see it. I mean, do you? Do oh, you? Yeah. Is, is that consistent for you? And and do you have any idea why that would be? I mean, in my clinical practice, I would have to agree with you. I think that there is 
there are many more opportunities for using simple checklists. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've done it in my practice in different ways. I've, whenever I was doing like a cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy with individuals, and we talk about, you know, sure. when to try deep breathing or relaxation. And, you know, we were very big right. on, you know, putting up a note as a reminder in a checklist. If you, yep. one of my um, favorite people, you know, profession, professionals in this area is um, the author of the checklist manifesto. Um, have you read that one? I, no, I, I don't even know what this is. <laughs> what, uh, what is the checklist it's manifesto? Actually, it's actually been around. It's, no, it's been around for a few years. So Atul Gawande. Um, I, I thought physician. you were going to say it was around for a really long time and remind me how no. young I am. And that. No, 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 <laughs> you're too young for that, Rob. Oh, no. No. <laughs> no, I think maybe it was. Maybe I could be mistaken. It might have been 09 or something, or maybe that's when he did the TED Talk. But Atul Gawande okay. um, is a phenomenal physician, and he recognized yeah. that many errors were being made during surgery. And, thing, and I think there was something like infections when putting in lines for delivery of IV antibiotics and stuff like that, um, something, something to that effect. And he said, well, you know, he's taken this concept of checklist from other areas, like mm-hmm. I said, aviation and, and different things. He put it together, and he decreased errors uh, within surgical procedures, like in double digits. Like, mm-hmm. it was incredible what he did wow. with a very simple checklist. And his point was, it's not a checklist for the folks um, at the bottom tier, like you know, the folks that are at the bottom of the hierarchy in terms of medicine who's delivering, it's for the folks at the very top, for that surgeon who needs to remember to wash his hands, dry them in a certain way, and glove up in a certain way. So he's talking about using these things um, in so many different areas and how it has such an impact. And I've always thought something so very simple that's been demonstrated to have effectiveness in areas other than applied behavior analysis. We should be making use of this mm-hmm. tool, you know, more frequently than we do. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I agree with you, and I think there's evidence out there, and I would encourage anybody who's listening, if they haven't seen his TED Talk, um, you know, just to Google that, Atul Gawande, and uh, take a listen to his 19-minute TED Talk, and he's, he goes into, you know, how simple this tool is. And, you know, at first some folks might think they're above using checklists when, in fact, it improves, you know, their performance dramatically yeah. in most cases. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. You were talking about coping strategies, and for me, what came to mind is some uh, some social skills that that I was teaching. And you know, I'm thinking of this one young man, and and he had like five different checklists for you know, he had his checklist that he memorized and he monitored for um, beginning a social interaction. He had another checklist that was kind of like his like midpoint check-in. So his whole thing was like kids sometimes got a little bored playing with him and he needed to like have a graceful exit to basically leave him coming Mm -hmm. back for more. So it's like, Mm -hmm. did I see this face? And he had like a bunch, like a checklist of things he was supposed Mm -hmm. to look for with body language to basically then be like, all right, I'm out of here. And then like, end Mm -hmm. on that high note. So that way he wasn't like being this burden, you know, and then he had a checklist for how to get out of there. And and, like, we had Mm -hmm. these little checklists and they were amazing. I mean, he did great with them. And I, I, things like that, you know, whether it be the coping strategy, whether it be the parent strategy, the, uh, hey, okay, great, when you go to the mall, we're going to do these five things and just keep these, even like you said, like on, on your phone, like they're right mm-hmm. there for you as a reminder. Mm-hmm. It, it seems mm-hmm. like, it, you know, 
to to again to to throw out the the controversial ABA comment that always uh, that I, I purposely now try to throw your way to make you blush a little bit is <laughs> I feel like I feel like we're so busy talking about VB and verbal behavior that sometimes we lose sight of these other things to be like hey there's these like great tools in our toolbox you know y- you can use them too it doesn't always have to be this one thing. And I and I just feel like lately we we've, we've lost sight of those things and and fidelity even falls into that for me. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I, I agree. That's why I love you know working with a few of the folks that we have, uh, some fantastic clinicians at AST. Um, we're pulling measures and and things that have been used outside yeah. of the field of behavior analysis. Anything that you break down within you know, um, clinical work, human services, if it's effective, there are mm-hmm. likely components of applied behavior analysis. We're talking about reinforcement and prompting and those things. Um, same thing mm-hmm. with a checklist. So, you know, folks have been using it in other areas for so long, and, you know, it it really can – it folds in nicely to the research that we have on self-monitoring yeah. and fidelity, you know, so we can just take it and use our own, you know, little vocabulary that we paid to learn in graduate school, but – you know, yeah, I think some of these very simple things should be used more frequently and, and broken down for parents so that they can actually become independent in developing these things. Because you don't need, necessarily need a clinician once you've been working with someone right. for a while and you kind of get the basics of what you need to do and how applied behavior analysis right. works. A parent can set up a little checklist for the weekend or for the play date to make sure that they have certain things done just to remind themselves, just to monitor what they're doing. Um so, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think sometimes we get um, too narrow in our focus and we forget, you know, to, to reach out and, mm-hmm. you know, broaden those concepts that, you know, have worked in other fields for, for years. So, like, you know, it seems like a good transition point. You know, as I said, I, I talk to parents and I talk to payers. And mm-hmm. I, I think to all of this. Like, I don't know, there was something about you where, not just the fidelity you just described, but even how a parent could use a checklist or how we could create little checklist routines. Like, I know you talk to a lot of pairs too, and, and, and they all seem to be asking that same question. It's like, well, well what is quality services? And, and how do we evaluate if treatment is going in a quality way? It's, it's not, it has to be another measure beyond just, did we meet this goal? Because that was somewhat yeah. arbitrary in, mm-hmm. in it, just because mm-hmm. maybe that goal was easy, maybe that goal was hard, maybe it took us a year mm-hmm. to meet that goal, maybe it took us a day to meet that goal. And, you know, there's, there's other dimensions to it. You know, I, I guess how does you know when we think about fidelity, or or even if you think about checklists, you know, how does that? How do you think that might factor in, you know, to this third party looking from the outside in to say, look, you know, is this treatment effective? Does fidelity give us something or give give them something to gauge? Well, actually, Rob, having been in a couple of meetings um, during last week, that's <laughs> one of the points that I did make. Um, I teed you, you up know, well for that one. Good. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is a softball. Um, no, it's uh, but it's but it's true. And we have some, you know, we have some accreditation folks who are out there too. You know, these larger yeah. um, agencies who come in, they took they take a look at what you know uh, an agency like AST is doing and. 
they are looking yeah. for certain things, you know, agency-wide, you know. Um, are we taking data? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. We all take data. Um, are you implementing evidence-based um, interventions? Well, sure, because we're using all these things listed in systematic reviews. Got it. But then when you drill down to really what's going on in, during that interaction, you know, there's some important things that you can be looking at, and that is a measure of fidelity or integrity. How well are they implementing these things? So, and I know we've talked in the past about having inner observer agreements or having, you know, two folks taking data at the same time and getting similar results. That's really important. Are we, you know, measuring what we're supposed to be measuring? Uh, and then fidelity, are we are we implementing things like we said we would implement them? And to even go further down the rabbit hole, you can get IOA on fidelity. So you can have two people measuring the, you know, measuring the, the steps that should be implemented. Now, let's just get crazy there for a second. That's a whole other level of quality that folks should and could be looking for. And I think that that's one way that we can assure the folks who are, um, you know, paying for these services that, in fact, um, mm-hmm. we are providing quality. And, and here's how we can demonstrate that by having, you know, reliability measures and having integrity mm-hmm. measures available for everything that we do. I mean, you know, you're, it's the, the thing that I feel like has been impressive in, in my conversations, and it's not necessarily the treatment fidelity con- component, but what I found to be impressive is the, or, or people have said back to me, I should say, is we've done fidelity on our training. So, you know, our new hire training, our, our onboarding training for everyone at AST, you know, as you know, we do fidelity checks where someone is actually mm-hmm. going around to make sure that the trainers are implementing it with the fidelity of what the training was designed to be and that there's consistency mm-hmm. from site to site to site. And people are blown mm-hmm. away when I tell them that. They're like, well, how do you, mm-hmm. how do, you do that? What? They like, <laughs> love it, but they're like so surprised that we do that. And, and it strikes me as like the fact that you're surprised makes me wonder, like, what is it that you've been told about this field? You know, we take all this mm-hmm. data, and I, and I laugh about IOA upon IOA upon IOA, and it's like it's data mm-hmm. madness, but it's almost like mm-hmm. the purpose. It's like they know we take data, but they have no mm-hmm. idea why. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't blame them. I blame us. I, I blame, oh, I blame behavior analysts for not doing a good enough job. No, I mean, I think it goes back to disseminating, you know, the, the, our field in general to folks who can make mm-hmm. use of it. So if they don't, under, you know, if they're surprised or maybe they don't necessarily understand, that's on us to share with folks, mm-hmm. um, despite what Jack Michael might have said in an interview at one time, you know, that we should just, you know, proceed doing what we do and let other people join, you know, because we'll demonstrate our mm-hmm. superiority, I guess. But I agree with you. I think what we should be doing is telling people this is why this is important and this is what you should be looking at. I've seen folks who say they co- they're collecting data on you know every single program. I can go in and look and see that the data collection systems they have in place are absolutely incorrect. That they're not measuring what they're supposed to be measuring. You yeah. know, maybe you're taking dur- you know you're taking frequency on uh, tantrums when it should be duration. So you, they say, well, we only had one tantrum occur today, and I look and I see, well, but it lasted for right. three hours. So what's the? How should we be measuring that? You know, but if we don't educate folks on what all of this means, then 
you know, mm-hmm. you can overlook the, the those quality indicators, you know. So we need to be educating folks on, on what all of this means and why quality checks are important and how to do them and what to look for. I hear what you're saying, and, and I kind of want to, like, where I sometimes struggle when I go back to the payers is, you know, sometimes I'm sitting across the table, you know, I'm talking to a med director and I'm talking to an MD. Sometimes I'm sitting to someone who's a licensed psychologist. And I think about the, um, the TED Talk you were talking about, the, um, mm-hmm. about checklists, and you're mm-hmm. talking about these surgeons. You know, that makes perfect sense. Like, there's a checklist for a surgeon. There's concrete objective observable steps you follow this checklist you're now going to be doing this surgery with um with less errors it leads to a better surgery i then line that up with a psychologist and and i'm curious your opinion because i know you are a licensed psychologist mm-hmm. as well is you know does psychology have that same parallel where you can do a checklist for someone doing a therapy session and and where does ABA kind of fall in that? Because I feel like we're always compared, we're compared to medicine and we're compared to psychology, depending on who you're talking to, what's convenient, et cetera. So like where does ABA therefore then fall in this kind of like continuum when we think about kind of making parallels to the other parts of medicine? Oh, well, Coming from clinical psychology, you know, mainstream psychology in general, um, it, it's all about fidelity when we, from assessment to treatment. So we have um, standardized assessments. So if you've ever taken, you know, uh, an IQ assessment, a personality assessment, those sorts of things, they're mm-hmm. given in a very standardized way. And so when I was trained to do IQ tests with individuals, you take your manual out and you it says mm. line up the blocks in this exact way and then measure the individual's response in this exact way. And if it doesn't happen, mark it here because that's a ding on implementation right. integrity. Right. And yeah. that matters in the scores that you get, whether or not they're usable. Um, so from assessment and then if you go on to treatment, in mainstream psychology, um, manualized treatments, so cognitive behavioral therapy, um, dialectical mm-hmm. behavioral therapy, all of these manuals exist that say day one, section one, first 10 minutes, build rapport, second 20 minutes, work on this skill, you know, last five wow. minutes, work on review of homework. So it is manualized in such a way that it reduces errors and ensures that the, um, that the treatment is implemented in the same way across clinicians, across sites. And that's why they have these large group design. Uh, you know, the research has, you know, thousands of people at different sites. They'll always assure a level of integrity, uh, procedural integrity, um, because they'll say, well, this was a manualized treatment and we checked on implementation of this manualized treatment in this way. So it's a concept that's like you said, you can go from medicine, you go to psychology, and now to behavior analyst. So it's it's through all of those professional fields, there is a way to um, to discuss with professionals the importance of of um, uh, integrity. Yeah, you know, you brought up a bunch of of examples on the psychology side that I'd forgotten about, and I feel like I'm mm-hmm. constantly 
you know, and again, it's, it's just the audience of people I'm with. I sometimes feel like psychology, and, and people use probably not psychology. It's probably more specific for me to say it's like more of the, the counseling or psychotherapy side, where it's like, no, we're we're talking, and I can't manualize this whole thing for you. And, and granted, this behavior analyst saying this to me as the or as a reason why we can't ne- necessarily manualize what it is we do. And so that may be the wrong audience or, or, or group to be listening to. You know, so I guess my question to you, and this kind of probably takes us back full circle to a degree to some earlier shows, but you, know, you think about manualizing treatment and you think about the manualization of all of these different therapies, these, these medicine or, um, or medical procedures. You know, obviously, I, I think the probably the most commonly referenced issue for why we can't manualize treatment is, is probably the diagnosis of autism itself, that, you know, the needs of these individuals are so diverse and ABA typically being associated with autism, you kind of lump that in together. But, but is that, do you think that's an accurate statement? Is that overused or is there other barriers from getting in the way of having more of a manualized ABA kind of a therapy model? Well, what's interesting is um, uh, folks from the, uh, so, you know, probably some of the medical directors that you spoke with and, you know, even some of the folks that I've spoken with here recently from medicine, um, they will still ding the field of applied behavior analysis as not being, you know, empirically supported or at the level maybe right. some other therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, because of this lack of a yep. group designed research. But where we do have group design research is where we do have those, uh, the curriculums that are written out, um, things like the low VOS model, where they have a very specific mm-hmm. curriculum that goes across, you know, early intervention, those first few years of a child's life. You have mm-hmm. the early start Denver model, um, which mm-hmm. has, you know, a curriculum with it in a very specific way to go about implementing these things. And, so, you know, all of those have really strong elements of the of applied behavior analysis that are used throughout all, you know, high-quality individualized programs. Mm-hmm. So they found a way to manualize it and to publish in a curriculum and then test it across sites, which then produces, you know, these group design studies that physicians and, you know, folks from other sciences really love because it holds more weight than the single-subject research that behavior analysts often publish. So I think there is something to be said, you know, to have these um, more manualized treatments or, uh, you know, things like the Early Start Denver model or LOVAS, like I mentioned. Um, I think that does bode well for our um, for our field. Um, but I think we have to get better at showing, demonstrating how, you know, these individualized treatments that you say that which are much needed because, you know, autism is so heterogeneous in terms of, you know, everyone presents in a different way. And, again, I still firmly right. believe 20 or 30 years from now we'll probably have different autisms, um, yeah. you know, different presentations um, that will have to have a certain way to address the, you know, the skill deficits and the repetitive behaviors and things of that nature. Uh, so I think as a field we can get better at identifying these quality elements that would then allow us to aggregate data that is put together large numbers of folks responding to individualized programs, um, and we can have a bigger impact on the field and have a better understanding of maybe what works and what doesn't work, 
what are those critical elements for the majority mm-hmm. of programs, you know, for little kids, older kids, mm-hmm. individuals presenting in different ways. Um, I think there's a way to go about that. I don't think we're we're really good at it right now. Again, this field being quite yeah. young, uh, I think yeah. that, I think it's an evolution. I think it's in progress. But um, yeah, the need for individualizing things, I think, in some ways, um, hurts us as a field because we're having a hard time communicating. Um, how effective mm-hmm. it is to to folks in the other sciences. You know, and I, you know, even even as I was asking you the question, you know, I, w- I was going back to our conversation from our first show together when we talked about, you know, ABA research isn't so much about treatment packages; it's about the specific treatments that make up the package. And then, you know, I started to think about that dilemma of. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Project Pent. It was a project done out here in um, California. The emphasis was on um, developing good um, behavior support plans. So what they tried to do is manualize developing a behavior support plan for um, individuals in schools who are exhibiting maladaptive behaviors. So they kind of created their own little curriculum of how to write a plan, and then they had a grading system um, behind it and in in theory, it all makes perfect sense, but it all comes back to this concept of fidelity. It's you manualize all of this, but if there's not someone there actually checking to make sure, not that you check off each box, but like these are open-ended type of steps. It's not a check the box, I did it. It's there has to be a... Um, a level of detail within each box to say, well, this is, you know, this is what I'm going to do in this situation, or this is what the reinforcer is and the schedule of reinforcement we should follow. And if you don't have like, if there's more, if there's not more than just a black and white, like, yes, you filled out this section, but is there actually valid content to your point of, great, you have a goal for frequency, but it's a three hour tantrum. Is that really a valid content? Mm -hmm. Like we don't have that next level, you know, you must have all of that to go with it too, or the manualization it itself now becomes subpar. Right. And in, you know, in uh, previous uh, work history, previous life, I, in other clinical situations, yeah. when I've developed behavior intervention plans, it also had an accompanying checklist. And the way that checklist or integrity checklist implemented was doing observations. Um, So, you know, hopping on a a camera that might have been in a classroom um, and watching the implementation of uh, of a behavior intervention plan. To your point, you can't go through, you know, a checklist and see everything implemented every day uh, Mm -hmm. because because it's individualized, you know, and it's dynamic and fluid situations in in a school setting. But what you can do is check to see that, you know, let's say, for example, um, if I'd put antecedent, certain antecedent measures in place, like the use of a token system, the use of some um, picture prompts or a certain area to seat an individual, mm-hmm. I could, you know, do the observation. I'd have my checklist that's, that would, you know, indicate how many of these antecedent um, procedures were in place um, and did I have an opportunity to observe it. So I, I think even with this individualization, even with complex behavior intervention plans, you can 
gather some information regarding the quality of implementation with some spot checks. That's why I love audits. Um, that's why I love, uh, you know, random observations, you know, going into a classroom, sitting down and seeing what's happening, having a checklist ready to go that accompanies any one of the behavior intervention plans that I've developed worked out really well because it also let me know, you know, where we fell short. It was likely because of a lack of training or understanding from the um, teacher or the direct care staff's perspective. Right. So if something wasn't implemented more often than not when I would check in with them about that. It was simply a matter of training and, you know, providing some more information. So I think it can be used in so many different ways. You know, from a payer mm-hmm. perspective, we have this quality assurance component in there, but from a clinical perspective, I can also make sure that my direct care staff understand everything that's been written, why they're doing it, and train them a little bit better to make use of these, um, of these tools that, that I've developed in this, right. in, in this plan. Nice. Well, I think this might be that point of, like, stop, digest, take all of this in because I feel like we've covered a lot and I feel like I <laughs> hit my moment of like, all right, we've gone hardcore ABA for about 40 minutes and I need to kind of like <laughs> digest this all myself. And so, um, so thank you so much. Obviously it's always amazing to talk to you. And, and I think, um, you know, as you alluded to with some of your conversations, this is, you know, for, I think on a, intellectual level about the field and an educational level for our listeners, I think this is really great. But even just on like a professional level, this helps me kind of reframe my thought process, you know, to hear mm-hmm. your way of thinking about it because um, as, as our listeners now know, I mean, the way you view this is such, it's just so phenomenal and it's, it's not, what I hear on a day-to-day basis when I talk to the average behavior analyst, um, you know, your, your, God, what is it? Oh, I'm already blanking, screwing up the words. It's not clinical intuition. It's your, ooh, professional, yeah, clinical judgment. I felt like you had, you had another way of putting it. It's like that, you know, that learned history of the clinical judgment, um, which of course you operationally define so very well, and and I just you know like ah clinical judgment we're good, <laughs> but but truly that learned history and that clinical judgment is so strong. So uh, mm-hmm. you, you as always you've given me things to think about and already a couple of ideas of of what we can be doing and and what I can go back to some of these parents and some of these pairs and kind of talk to them about to kind of keep driving the uh, the the field and the quality of the services forward. Well, it is always a pleasure, Rob, a delight to talk with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. <laughs> you know, as you kind of hear it all through, it it, it hopefully rings true for all of you. I, as I said, it's pretty nitty-gritty. It's it's kind of a, a, a big look behind the scenes into the, I guess, the supervision, the world of a BCBA. Um, but I think this is going to be a major topic for everybody providers, for parents, um, even even for the, the kids specifically we work with. You know, as we've talked about on other shows, programs like self-management, uh, where we're working with some of our older learners to really kind of self-monitor, self-regulate their own behaviors, and things like fidelity come up or even for them. Um, but this, this concept of are we implementing this treatment correctly is one that I think is going to continue to go um, into more and more levels of dialogue 
when it comes to the funding of ABA. Um, and, and Hannah's example um, about checklists and, and thinking about, you know, this idea of a checklist, you know, a flight uh, pilot going through a checklist to ensure that there's the accuracy of kind of the pre-launch or the pre-takeoff. Um, surgeons having checklists to kind of go through to be able to evaluate was this surgery, this operation done correctly. I, th- I think that concept is going to apply more and more to the world of ABA. And I think it's a concept that our our insurance companies in particular are going to be looking at more and more as we go. So the good news is by having these dialogues now, by, by you guys getting involved in this dialogue now, we're all getting a head start and we're all kind of informing ourselves more and more to be able to frame these conversations and really and really have a voice in, in some key decisions that I think are going to be made in, in the years to come. As always, take care. Have a great week. You can reach out to us at more at more info at autismtherapies.com. You can find us on Facebook at the Autism Spectrum Therapies Facebook page. Um, any questions, input, uh, anything you want to share with us, please do. We, we love to hear from all of you guys out there. Have a great week. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.